Section two of Canoeing in the Wilderness by Henry David Thoreau. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Melissa Green. Chapter two. Friday, July twenty fourth. About four o'clock the next morning, though it was quite cloudy, accompanied by the landlord to the water's edge in the twilight, we launched our canoe from a rock on Moosehead Lake. We had a rather small canoe for three persons, eighteen and one-fourth feet long by two feet six and one-half inches wide in the middle, and one foot deep within. I judged that it would weigh not far from eighty pounds. The Indian had recently made it himself, and its smallness was partly compensated for by its newness, as well as staunchness and solidity, it being made of very thick bark and ribs. Our baggage weighed about one hundred and sixty-six pounds. The principal part of the baggage was, as usual, placed in the middle of the broadest part, while we stowed ourselves in the chinks and crannies that were left before and behind it, where there was no room to extend our legs, the loose articles being tucked into the ends. The canoe was thus as closely packed as a market-basket. The Indian sat on a crossbar in the stern, but we flat on the bottom with a splint or chip behind our backs to protect them from the crossbar, and one of us commonly paddled with the Indian. Paddling along the eastern side of the lake in the still of the morning, we soon saw a few shell-drakes, which the Indian called chicorways, and some wheat-wheats on the rocky shore. We also saw and heard loons. It was inspiring to hear the regular dip of the paddles as if they were our fins or flippers, and to realize that we were at length fairly embarked. Having passed the small rocky isle within two or three miles of the foot of the lake, we had a short consultation respecting our course— and inclined to the western shore for the sake of its lee, for otherwise if the wind should rise, it would be impossible for us to reach Mount Kineo, which is about midway up the lake on the east side, but at its narrowest part, where probably we could recross if we took the western side. The wind is the chief obstacle to crossing the lakes, especially in so small a canoe. The Indian remarked several times that he did not like to cross the lakes in Littleum Canoe, but nevertheless, just as we say, it made no odds to him. Moosehead Lake is twelve miles wide at the widest place, and thirty miles long in a direct line, but longer as it lies. Paddling near the shore, we frequently heard the pay-pay of the olive-sided flycatcher, also the wood-peewee and the kingfisher. The Indian, reminding us that he could not work without eating, we stopped to breakfast on the main shore southwest of Deer Island. We took out our bags, and the Indian made a fire under a very large bleached log, using white pine bark from a stump, though he said that hemlock was better, and kindling with canoe birch bark. Our table was a large piece of freshly peeled birch bark, laid wrong side up, and our breakfast consisted of hard bread, fried pork, and strong coffee well sweetened, in which we did not miss the milk. While we were getting breakfast, a brood of twelve black dippers, half-grown, came paddling by within three or four rods, not at all alarmed and they loitered about as long as we stayed, now huddled close together, now moving off in a long line very cunningly. Looking northward from this place it appeared as if we were entering a large bay, and we did not know whether we should be obliged to diverge from our course and keep outside a point which we saw, or should find a passage between this and the mainland. It was misty dog-day weather, and we had already penetrated a smaller bay of the same kind, and knocked the bottom out of it, though we had been obliged to pass over a bar between an island and the shore, where there was but just breadth and depth enough to float the canoe, and the Indian had observed, very easy make em bridge here. But now it seemed that if we held on we should be fairly embayed. Presently, however, the mist lifted somewhat and revealed a break in the shore northward. 
The Indian immediately remarked, I guess you and I go there. This was his common expression instead of saying we. He never addressed us by our names, though curious to know how they were spelled and what they meant. We called him Polis. He had already guessed very accurately at our ages, and said that he was forty-eight. After breakfast, I emptied the melted pork that was left into the lake, making what the sailors call a slick, and watching to see how much it spread over and smoothed the agitated surface. The Indian looked at it a moment and said, That make hard paddle em through, hold em canoe. So say old times. We hastily reloaded, putting the dishes loose in the bows, that they might be at hand when we wanted, and set out again. The western shore, near which we paddled along, rose gently to a considerable height, and was everywhere densely covered with the forest, in which was a large proportion of hardwood to enliven and relieve the fir and spruce. The Indian said that the lichen which we saw hanging from the trees was called Kurkork. We asked him the names of several birds, which we heard this morning. The thrush, which was quite common, and whose note he imitated, he said was called Edelungquamuktum but sometimes he could not tell the name of some small bird which i heard and knew but he said i tell all the birds about here can't tell little em noise but i see em then i can tell i observed that i should like to go to school to him to learn his language living on the indian island the while could not that be done oh yer he replied good many do so i asked how long he thought it would take he said one week I told him that in this voyage I would tell him all I knew, and he should tell me all he knew, to which he readily agreed. Mount Kineo, which was generally visible, though occasionally concealed by islands or the mainland in front, had a level bar of cloud concealing its summit, and all the mountain tops about the lake were cut off at the same height. Ducks of various kinds were quite common, and ran over the water before us as fast as a horse trots. The Indian asked the meaning of reality as near as I could make out the word, which he said one of us had used. Also, of interrent, that is, intelligent. I observed that he could rarely sound the letter R, but used L, as also R for L sometimes, as load for road, pickerel for pickerel, sugal island for sugar island. He generally added the syllable um to his words, as paddleum, etc., on a point on the mainland, where we landed to stretch our legs and look at the vegetation, going inland a few steps I discovered a fire still glowing beneath its ashes, where somebody had breakfasted, and a bed of twigs prepared for the following night. So I knew not only that they had just left, but that they designed to return, and by the breadth of the bed that there was more than one in the party. You might have gone within six feet of these signs without seeing them. There grew the beaked hazel, rue seven feet high, and red osier, whose bark the Indian said was good to smoke, tobacco before white people came to this country, Indian tobacco. The Indian was always very careful in approaching the shore, lest he should injure his canoe on the rocks, letting it swing round slowly sidewise, and was still more particular that we should not step into it on shore, nor till it floated free and then should step gently lest we should open its seams or make a hole in the bottom. After passing Deer Island, we saw the little steamer from Greenville, far east in the middle of the lake. Sometimes we could hardly tell her from an island which had a few trees on it. Here we were exposed to the wind from over the whole breadth of the lake, and ran a little risk of being swamped. While I had my eye fixed on the spot where a large fish had leaped, we took in a gallon or two of water. But we soon reached the shore and took the canoe over the bar at Sandbar Island, a few feet wide only, and so saved a considerable distance. We crossed a broad bay and found the water quite rough. 
A very little wind on these broad lakes raises a sea which will swamp a canoe. Looking off from the shore, the surface may appear to be almost smooth a mile distant, or if you see a few white crests, they appear nearly level with the rest of the lake. But when you get out so far, you may find quite a sea running, and ere long, before you think of it, a wave will gently creep up the side of the canoe and fill your lap, like a monster, deliberately covering you with its slime before it swallows you, or it will strike the canoe violently and break into it. The same thing may happen when the wind rises suddenly, though it were perfectly calm and smooth there a few minutes before, so that nothing can save you unless you can swim ashore, for it is impossible to get into a canoe when it is upset. Since you sit flat on the bottom, though the danger should not be imminent, a little water is a great inconvenience, not to mention the wetting of your provisions. We rarely crossed even a bay directly from point to point when there was wind, but made a slight curve corresponding somewhat to the shore, that we might the sooner reach it if the wind increased. When the wind is aft and not too strong, the Indian makes a spirit sail of his blanket. He thus easily skims over the whole length of this lake in a day. The Indian paddled on one side and one of us on the other to keep the canoe steady, and when he wanted to change hands he would say, to other side. He asserted, in answer to our questions, that he had never upset a canoe himself, though he may have been upset by others. Think of our little eggshell of a canoe tossing across that great lake a mere black speck to the eagle soaring above it. My companion trailed for trout as we paddled along, but the Indian warning him that a big fish might upset us, for there are some very large ones there, he agreed to pass the line quickly to the stern if he had a bite. While we were crossing this bay, where Mount Kineo rose dark before us, within two or three miles, the Indian repeated the tradition respecting this mountain's having anciently been a cow moose, how a mighty Indian hunter succeeded in killing this queen of the moose tribe with great difficulty, while her calf was killed somewhere among the islands in Penobscot Bay, and to his eyes this mountain had still the form of the moose in a reclining posture. He told this at some length and with apparent good faith, and asked us how we supposed the hunter could have killed such a mighty moose as that. An Indian tells such a story as if he thought it deserved to have a good deal said about it, only he has not got it to say, and so he makes up for the deficiency by a drawling tone, long-windedness, and a dumb wonder which he hopes will be contagious. We approached the land again through pretty rough water, and then steered directly across the lake at its narrowest part to the eastern side, and were soon partly under the lee of the mountain having paddled about twenty miles. It was now about noon. We designed to stop there that afternoon and night, and spent half an hour looking along the shore northward for a suitable place to camp. At length, by going half a dozen rods into the dense spruce and firwood on the side of the mountain, almost as dark as a cellar, we found a place sufficiently clear and level to lie down on after cutting away a few bushes. The Indian cleared a path to it from the shore with his axe, and we then carried up all our baggage, pitched our tent, and made our bed in order to be ready for foul weather, which then threatened us and for the night. He gathered a large armful of fir twigs, breaking them off, which he said were the best for our bed, partly, I thought, because they were the largest and could be most rapidly collected. It had been raining more or less for four or five days, and the wood was even damper than usual, but he got dry bark from the underside of a dead leaning hemlock, which he said he could always do. This noon, his mind was occupied with a law question, and I referred him to my companion, who was a lawyer. It appeared that he had been buying land lately, I think it was a hundred acres, but there was probably an encumbrance to it, somebody else claiming to have bought some grass on it for this year. He wished to know to whom the grass belonged, and was told that if the other man could prove that he bought the grass before he, Polis, bought the land, the former could take it whether the latter knew it or not. 
to which he only answered, Strange. He went over this several times, fairly sat down to it, with his back to a tree, as if he meant to confine us to this topic henceforth, but as he made no headway, only reached the jumping-off place of his wonder at white men's institutions after each explanation, we let the subject die. He said that he had fifty acres of grass, potatoes, etc., somewhere above Old Town, besides some about his house, that he hired a good deal of his work hoeing, etc., and preferred white men to Indians because they keep steady and know how. After dinner, we returned southward along the shore, in the canoe, on account of the difficulty of climbing over the rocks and fallen trees, and began to ascend the mountain along the edge of the precipice but a smart shower coming up just then, the Indian crept under his canoe while we, protected by our rubber coats, proceeded to botanize. So we sent him back to the camp for shelter, agreeing that he should come for us with his canoe toward night. It had rained a little in the forenoon, and we trusted that this would be the clearing-up shower, which it proved, but our feet and legs were thoroughly wet by the bushes. The clouds breaking away a little, we had a glorious wild view as we ascended, of the broad lake with its numerous forest-clad islands extending beyond our sight both north and south, and the boundless forest undulating away from its shores on every side, as densely packed as a rye-field and enveloping nameless mountains in succession. It was a perfect lake of the woods. Looking southward, the heavens were completely overcast, the mountains capped with clouds, and the lake generally wore a dark and stormy appearance but from its surface six or eight miles distance there was reflected upward through the misty air a bright blue tinge from the unseen sky of another latitude beyond. They probably had a clear sky then at the south end of the lake. Again we mistook a little rocky islet seen through the drisk with some taller bare trunks or stumps on it for the steamer with its smoke-pipes, but as it had not changed its position after half an hour we were undeceived. So much do the works of man resemble the works of nature. A moose might mistake a steamer for a floating isle, and not be scared till he heard its puffing or its whistle. If I wished to see a mountain or other scenery under the most favorable auspices, I would go to it in foul weather so as to be there when it cleared up. We are then in the most suitable mood, and nature is most fresh and inspiring. There is no serenity so fair as that which is just established in a tearful eye. Jackson, in his report on the geology of Maine, says, Hornstone, which will answer for flints, occurs in various parts of the state. The largest mass of this stone known in the world is Mount Kineo, upon Moosehead Lake, which appears to be entirely composed of it, and rises seven hundred feet above the lake level. This variety of hornstone I have seen in every part of New England in the form of Indian arrowheads, hatchets, chisels, etc., which were probably obtained from this mountain by the aboriginal inhabitants of the country. I have myself found hundreds of arrowheads made of the same material. It is generally slate-colored with white specks, becoming a uniform white where exposed to the light and air. I picked up a small, thin piece which had so sharp an edge that I used it as a knife, and to see what I could do, fairly cut off an aspen one inch thick with it by bending it and making many cuts, though I cut my fingers badly with the back of it in the meanwhile. From the summit of the precipice, which forms the southern and eastern sides of this mountain peninsula, five or six hundred feet high, we probably might have jumped down to the water, or to the seemingly dwarfish trees on the narrow neck of land which connects it with the main. It is a dangerous place to try the steadiness of your nerves. The plants which attracted our attention on this mountain were the mountain sinkfoil, abundant and in bloom still at the very base by the waterside, 
very beautiful harebells overhanging the precipice, bearberry, the Canadian blueberry, wild holly, the great round-leafed orchis, bunchberry, reddening as we ascended, green at the base of the mountain, red at the top, and the small fern, woodsia ilvensis, growing in tufts, now in fruit. Having explored the wonders of the mountain, and the weather being now cleared up, we commenced the descent. We met the Indian, puffing and panting, about one-third of the way up, but thinking that he must be near the top. On reaching the canoe, we found that he had caught a lake trout weighing about three pounds while we were on the mountain. When we got to the camp, the canoe was taken out and turned over, and a log laid across it to prevent its being blown away. The Indian cut some large logs of damp and rotten wood to smolder and keep fire through the night. The trout was fried for supper. Our tent was of thin cotton cloth and quite small, forming with the ground a triangular prism closed at the rear end, six feet long, seven wide, and four high, so that we could barely sit up in the middle. It required two forked stakes, a smooth ridge pole, and a dozen or more pins to pitch it. It kept off dew and wind and an ordinary rain, and answered our purpose well enough. We reclined within it till bedtime, each with his baggage at his head, or else sat about the fire, having hung our wet clothes on a pole before the fire for the night. As we sat there, just before night, looking out through the dusky wood, the Indian heard a noise which he said was made by a snake. He imitated it at my request, making a low whistling note feet, feet, two or three times, repeated, somewhat like the peep of the hyla, but not so loud. He said that he had never seen them while making it, but going to the spot he finds the snake. This, he said, was a sign of rain. When I had selected this place for our camp, he had remarked that there were snakes here. But they won't do any hurt, I said. Oh, no, he answered. Just as you say, it makes no difference to me. He lay on the right side of the tent because he said he was partly deaf in one ear and he wanted to lie with his good ear up. As we lay there, he inquired if I ever heard Indians sing. I replied that I had not often and asked him if he would not favor us with a song. He readily assented, and lying on his back with his blanket wrapped around him, he commenced a slow, somewhat nasal yet musical chant in his own language, which probably was taught his tribe long ago by the Catholic missionaries. He translated it to us sentence by sentence afterward. It proved to be a very simple religious exercise or hymn, the burden of which was that there was only one God who ruled all the world. His singing carried me back to the period of the discovery of America when Europeans first encountered the simple faith of the Indian. There was indeed a beautiful simplicity about it, nothing of the dark and savage, only the mild and infantile. The sentiments of humility and reverence chiefly were expressed. It was a dense and damp spruce and fir wood in which we lay, and except for our fire, perfectly dark and when I awoke in the night, I either heard an owl from deeper in the forest behind us or a loon from a distance over the lake. Getting up some time after midnight to collect the scattered brands together while my companions were sound asleep, I observed, partly in the fire, which had ceased to blaze, a perfectly regular elliptical ring of light, about five inches in its shortest diameter, six or seven in its longer, and from one-eighth to one-quarter of an inch wide. It was fully as bright as the fire, but not reddish or scarlet like a coal, but a white and slumbering light, like the glow-worms. I saw at once that it must be phosphorescent wood, which I had often heard of but never chanced to see. Putting my finger on it, with a little hesitation, I found that it was a piece of dead moose-wood which the Indian had cut off in a slanting direction the evening before. Using my knife, I discovered that the light proceeded from that portion of the sapwood immediately under the bark, and thus presented a regular ring at the end, and when I pared off the bark and cut into the sap, it was all aglow along the log. I was surprised to find the wood quite hard and apparently sound, though probably decay had commenced in the sap, 
and I cut out some little triangular chips, and placing them in the hollow of my hand, carried them into the camp, waked my companion, and showed them to him. They lit up the inside of my hand, revealing the lines and wrinkles, and appearing exactly like holes of fire raised to a white heat. I noticed that part of a decaying stump within four or five feet of the fire, an inch wide and six inches long, soft and shaking wood, shone with equal brightness. I neglected to ascertain whether our fire had anything to do with this, but the previous day's rain and long-continued wet weather undoubtedly had. I was exceedingly interested by this phenomenon. It could hardly have thrilled me more if it had taken the form of letters, or of the human face. I little thought that there was such a light shining in the darkness of the wilderness for me. The next day the Indian told me their name for the light, Artusoku and on my inquiring concerning the will-o'-the-wisp he said that his folks sometimes saw fires passing along at various heights even as high as the trees and making a noise i was prepared after this to hear of the most startling and unimagined phenomena witnessed by his folks they are abroad at all hours and seasons in scenes so unfrequented by white men nature must have made a thousand revelations to them which are still secrets to us i did not regret my not having seen this before since I now saw it under circumstances so favorable. I was in just the frame of mind to see something wonderful, and this was a phenomenon adequate to my circumstances and expectation, and it put me on the alert to see more like it. I let science slide and rejoiced in that light as if it had been a fellow creature. A scientific explanation, as it is called, would have been altogether out of place there. That is for pale daylight. Science, with its retorts, would have put me to sleep, it was the opportunity to be ignorant that I improved. It made a believer of me more than before. I believed that the woods were not tenantless, but chokeful of honest spirits as good as myself any day. Not an empty chamber in which chemistry was left to work alone, but an inhabited house. It suggested, too, that the same experience always gives birth to the same sort of belief or religion. One revelation has been made to the Indian, another to the white man. I have much to learn of the Indian, nothing of the missionary. I am not sure but all that would tempt me to teach the Indian my religion would be his promise to teach me his. Long enough I had heard of irrelevant things. Now at length I was glad to make acquaintance with the light that dwells in rotten wood. I kept those little chips and wet them again the next night, but they emitted no light. End of section 2 Recording by Melissa Green